this is Media Roots Radio with your host Robbie Martin. Just me solo tonight. It is Thursday, April 6th, at 6.33 p.m. Pacific Time. Ten minutes ago, U.S. military just launched more than 50 Tomahawk missiles at Syrian military bases, um, at Assad's military bases, specifically one uh, military base that allegedly held the chemical weapons. So this is uh, really disturbing information. I'm kind of just trying to watch TV at the same time that I'm doing this. This is so fucked up, man. It almost, I mean, where's this map from that CNN is showing right now? Let me guess. Is this a fucking Institute for the Study of War map? I feel physically ill right now. So I'm going to try to do this podcast still. But the casualness in which these people are talking about this is very disturbing. They're saying Trump is getting ready to talk to reporters at Mar-a-Lago Resort about the war that he just launched. This is fucking, this is a fucking nightmare, everybody. And I hate to say I told you so to people who thought that Trump was somehow going to be better on war than Hillary Clinton. Um, But I mean, there's really no reason to think that Trump wouldn't also start World War III. I mean... I guess what's shocking is that he just decides to do this shit so fast. Apparently, he didn't even consult with any allies of the United States or uh, a lot of State Department officials didn't even know this was about to happen. Um, I just saw John Hudson from Foreign Policy tweet that. This is fucking nuts. And the way that they can just act so casual on the news about this is just super surreal. I don't even want to watch MSNBC right now because I keep seeing people tweeting about how Rachel Maddow is like bringing all these generals on to talk about how awesome this is. And I just can't, I just don't even want to see that. Glad um, CNN has their little CGI fucking rotating Tomahawk missile graphics ready to go. Um, They look beautiful, CNN. Great job on those. Great job. Great fucking job. Assad choked out the lives of helpless men, women, and children. This is a really bizarre it was speech. A slow and brutal death for so many. It's from Mar-a-Lago. Even beautiful babies were cruelly murdered in this very barbaric attack. No child of God should ever suffer such horror. Tonight I ordered a targeted military strike on the airfield in Syria from where the chemical attack was launched. It is in this vital national security interest of the United States Wow. It sounds like they wouldn't let them use press microphones. Weapons. So the audio feed is like totally fucked. This is incredibly bizarre. Wow. Violated its obligations under the Chemical Weapons Convention 
and ignored the urging of the UN Security Council. Years of previous attempts at changing Assad's behavior have all failed and failed very dramatically. As a result, the refugee crisis continues to deepen and the region continues to destabilize, threatening the United States and its allies. Tonight I call on all civilized nations to join us in seeking to end the slaughter and bloodshed in Syria. Why is the audio so fucked up? To end terrorism of all kinds and all types. We ask for God's wisdom as we face the challenge of our very troubled world. We pray for the lives of the wounded and for the souls of those who have passed. And we hope that as long as America stands for justice, then peace and harmony will in the end prevail. Good night and God bless America and the entire world. Thank you. That was incredibly that disturbing. Was striking visual. Wow. We should probably talk about uh, wow. that in addition to the substance, a lot of which was anticipated. So we just skipped forward eight days um, after that clip I was reacting to of Trump literally announcing that he was that he had already struck Syria at Mar-a-Lago off of like a closed circuit um like Mar-a-Lago camera production unit um so pretty uh that was pretty disturbing to listen to um I just re-listened to it again just to remember uh what I was feeling when I heard that and and the news about the missile strike I guess one of the most notable things that's happened since then in the last eight days is that now the mainstream media likes Trump. This is the most serious that they've ever treated him. Somehow, I don't know if it was the people advising him, how exactly this transpired, but all of a sudden Trump is now full-blown neocon cowboy diplomacy style. I mean, we basically have currently an administration that is poised to be more over the top, more militaristic, and even more neocon than George W. Bush by a long shot. And I'll explain to you why I think that. Of course, you'll have absolutely disingenuous, phony anti-interventionists like Mike Cernovich and Paul Joseph Watson of InfoWars writing articles that are literally getting quote-unquote leaks from inside the Trump White House. So basically what's happening here is Cernovich and Paul Joseph Watson are writing articles based on insider White House quote leaks. And guess what these articles say? Essentially, Trump's military turnaround, his entire rhetoric flipping on itself of not being an anti-interventionist is all due to, guess what? It's that McMaster, General McMaster, his national security advisor, is a secret neocon trying to conduct a neocon coup 
in Trump's administration. Sorry if I can't help make the tone of my voice sound extremely disdainful at this absolutely fucking garbage reporting. One thing I have to compliment the Trump administration for is they are incredibly savvy in the sense that they are using basically these alt-right you know, favorites, these phony anti-interventionists as mouthpieces for propaganda in order to lock down his own base. The Trump administration is literally using Infowars.com as a propaganda mouthpiece. Mike Cernovich, whether he knows it or not, is that Cernovich is being used as a conduit for the Trump administration's propaganda as well. And all of this blame apparently goes on General McMaster, who all of a sudden, according to Paul Joseph Watson, he's all of a sudden a neocon and a dangerous neocon. Well, thank you, InfoWars and Paul Joseph Watson, for apologizing and carrying water for every fucking thing Trump did during his entire campaign and telling your audience that he was, not an, that he was an anti-interventionist, and that Trump wasn't bringing any neocons into his administration. And if you're just listening to this podcast for the first time, which is highly unlikely, <laughs> I recommend checking out a documentary film series I made called The Very Heavy Agenda. Is seven and a half hours long, all three parts of it um, combined is seven and a half hours. And I tried to educate people as best as I could on the dangers of neoconservatism, how neoconservatism went away because it was a ruined brand after the Bush administration and how it came back almost bigger than ever under the Obama administration and how neocons sort of merged with liberal interventionists and got a lot of Democrats um, to get on board with their agenda. Uh, the one thing that I didn't cover in my film uh, was the outlier neocons circulating and promoting Trump, which include John Bolton, James Woolsey, um, William Bennett, Michael Ledeen, Frank Gaffney. Um, these are all PNAC signatories, Project for the New American Century signatories. Now, all these alt-right people, including Cernovich and Paul Joseph Watson, were well aware of the fact that Trump was bringing these people into his transition team. Um, Michael Ledeen was not part of his transition team, but he was very pro-Trump. He didn't go along with the other neocons who were pro-Hillary Clinton. But these alt-right pieces of shit never mentioned the fact that Michael Ledeen co-wrote a book with this guy that they constantly hype up and praise as being, you know, on our side. He's not a neocon. Michael Flynn. He's somehow a good guy. And I've already spent plenty of time on this podcast explaining how Michael Flynn is a dangerous fucking psychotic piece of shit. It doesn't matter to me if he's exactly on the same page as other neocons. What matters to me is that the dude co-wrote a book with one of the most psychotic neocons of all time, Michael Ledeen. That should be enough to warn people that Trump wasn't going to be an anti-interventionist. I mean... It, it, it was becoming harder and harder to believe that when he was bringing in all these neocons into his transition team. But at this point, it is impossible to believe that Trump is a anti-interventionist or that Trump is anti-war. Unless you're lying, you're a Trump sycophant and you just defend anything he does, or you're deliberately carrying water for him and acting as a conduit for his propaganda. And on the other hand, there are a lot of Trump voters 
who are just right-wing, bloodthirsty, you know, militarist-minded people who like it every time we do murder people across the world. They, they have no problem with it. You know, we have this, maybe this false impression that a lot of people on the alt-right, uh, it was important for them that Trump made friends with Russia, that he pulled out of all these world quagmires and, and, and sort of removed us from the global stage in, in terms of military endeavors. But I would be willing to bet the majority of Trump's voters are typical Republicans who cheer on bombings, who don't care who we're killing in the Middle East or across the world. They just assume everyone is, of course, that they are a terrorist. Terrorists are better off dead than alive. They don't even worry about things like civilian casualties. Um, They don't even care. If you notice, where was the quote-unquote the alt-right under the Obama administration? What were they complaining about most? As far as I can tell, a lot of those people were mostly complaining about Benghazi, which is pretty fucking pathetic, considering that Obama was constantly bombing Syria, Libya, Yemen, Pakistan. Um, Those people didn't really care. So I'm just going to read a little bit from um, two articles, one by Cernovich and one by Paul Joseph Watson. Um, just to illustrate exactly what I mean by both of them willingly being used as conduits for Trump's propaganda. All of their stuff, even though they claim they're anti-Syrian intervention, but in that regard, they're only anti-bombing Assad's forces. They're 100% cool with indiscriminately bombing, carpet bombing ISIS territories or anything else, which also result in civilian casualties. That's fine. And this is the problem with most anti-Syrian interventionists is to them, the line is bombing Assad. They don't mind when we bomb ISIS um, because to the, because they got sucked into the same thing everybody else did, this, this endless mili- Middle Eastern war against terrorism. So they're not anti-interventionists. They are just anti-interventionists in very specific circumstances. So keep that in mind. And please, I beg of you, please do not promote these people's phony anti-interventionist rhetoric. And I can understand it if you're a right-winger or a libertarian and sort of fall for more of this stuff. That's more understandable because they're more in line with your ideology. But a left-winger, and, I, and I've seen dozens of left-wing people retweeting him, I think that it's important to actually be concerned about the people who are delivering talking points that I like are these people, do these people have integrity? Are they honest? Are they authentic? Do they actually have principles that make sense? Are they not hypocrites? And I think it's important to do that. I'll just read from you a little bit from Cernovich's article, because basically, as I was saying earlier, it's designed to make Trump seem like the good guy. And it claims to have insider sources. So this article says is called McMaster manipulating intelligence reports to Trump wants 150,000 ground soldiers in Syria. You know, that means what this narrative is basically saying is that McMaster is this secret scheming neocon who's manipulating intelligence before it gets to Trump to try to push for 150,000 troops in Syria. So guess what, guys? If 150,000 troops go into Syria, or if any more troops go in, because Trump's already sent ground troops in there. Don't forget that. Um, This narrative is set up so that Trump is still the good guy. 
he his hand was forced or he was manipulated into it by secret neocon McMaster. It, it's so weird too because just as an example, I mean, this is a little bit of a tangent, but just one example of how Mike Cernovich is not mentally all there. He's he's trying to kind of be like a Charles Johnson, Chuck Johnson. Um, and I don't know if you remember Chuck Johnson. You know, he was a he was a total cunt um, across the board, but he actually did some original reporting and broke several stories over the years. And one of them he broke was the Elizabeth O'Baggy story that I covered in a very heavy agenda part three. <laughs> and he, I, I, I just, as douchey as that piece of shit is, I can't, it's just hard for me to believe he would write something like this in his own article. Cernovich writes about himself in the third person. He says, quote, McMaster is manipulating intelligence reports given to President Donald Trump. Cernovich media can now report. Dude's talking about himself in the third person, but that's the name of his media company. (laughs) Sources also suggest that, that McMaster is sharing classified information with Petraeus, whose security clearance was revoked. <laughs> this is the best part. Now, remember what I said earlier. Mike Flynn co-wrote a book with the most psychotic, bloodthirsty, insane neoconservative of all time. I'm not talking about Bill Kristol or Robert Kagan. I'm talking about Michael Ledeen. This is what it says in Cernovich's article. Quote, two men were standing, were standing, so make sure you realize that they're not standing anymore that two men were standing in between another u.s led war in the middle east general mike flynn and steve bannon unquote so if anybody watched abby's bannon episode of the empire files you know that it's pretty goddamn stupid to think that steve bannon is actually anti-war or that he would somehow be a bulwark to stop the Trump administration from getting us into another war. This is the guy who runs Breitbart. Breitbart is not an anti-interventionist outlet. At best, it's a economic nationalist, you know, sort of nationalist outlet. Um, This is where I get really disgusted with this bullshit being spread around because it should be clear to anybody who studied either person, Mike Flynn or Bannon, that they're not anti-war. That they're not, that these are not people who are going to somehow prevent us from getting into another ground war. Complete fantasy. So basically, now that now that Bannon is weakened and Mike Flynn is gone, what Cernovich is basically saying is that this can happen, and it's still not Trump's fault. It's because McMaster, the secret neocon, is the one manipulating intelligence, and that Mike Flynn, you know, was the good guy, and he wouldn't have let something like this happen. Mike Flynn is the guy who said Islam, the entire religion, the entire Muslim religion, all 1.6 billion people, or however many Muslims are, all, are on the globe, they are all one giant sleeper cell terrorist organization. This is what the type of shit Mike Flynn used to say. So explain to me again how he was one of the men standing in between another U.S.-led war in the Middle East? That doesn't just doesn't make sense. Now, I understand if people want to say that Mike Flynn himself is not a neocon and that Bannon aren't, isn't a neocon. Sure, technically they aren't. But why does that make one think that they're also anti-interventionists? Is it because Steve Bannon 
has praised Tulsi Gabbard, a woman who, in my opinion, has made some, you know, she, she has a lot of good foreign policy positions, but she also has a lot of bad politics. Um, she blocked a bill allowing refugees to come into the country. She uses a lot of language about the Syrian intervention that, to me, shows just sort of poor choice of words and poor choice of talking points. Um, and I'll go into that later about why I think the, you know, the, the talking point that the rebels in Syria are jihadists is possibly one of the most damaging talking points for a strong anti-Syrian interventionist movement um, that exists right now. Because it should be obvious to anyone that that can be inverted and used very easily to paint anti-Syrian intervention critics as actually being Islamophobic. I know that sounds nuts, but, you know, there is a gradient here. I mean, we have at the very most extreme ISIS, who is blatantly balls to the wall using, you know, child soldiers to behead people, you know, throwing gays off rooftops. We have that in Syria. And then we also have, quote unquote, Islamic jihadists fighting Assad regime as uh, in the forms of all these other rebel groups and all the way down to people who probably, you know, are secular really. So there's a gradient there. I mean, it has to be a gradient. Um, but according to a lot of anti Syrian intervention critics, and I would argue this talking point mainly came from the right wing, even though there is some truth to it, I think it serves to oversimplify the narrative and actually distract away from the real crux of what the problem is here, is that it's U.S. intervention. It's a covert proxy war that the CIA is funding by using rebel forces as proxies. Regardless of who the rebel forces are, to me, that's the fundamental problem here. But what we have is dozens of anti-Syrian intervention critics only bringing up the fact that the rebels are jihadis. That's literally the only thing that they're bringing up over and over and over again. That is a, it's not a, it's not a winning argument. It's a flawed one, in my opinion, because look at it this way. If there was a contingent of anti-Afghanistan intervention people back in the late 70s, early 80s under Jimmy Carter, is it a better argument to, war- to talk about how these rebels we were funding in Afghanistan are jihadis? Or is it a better argument to talk about how we should not be funding rebels in Afghanistan regardless of who they are? To me, the second one is a stronger argument. Um, you know, you could maybe point out occasionally what kind of horrible things these rebels are doing. That's fine. I mean, and a lot of the rebels in Syria do horrible atrocious things you know some some in some cases very similar to what isis did except not with the high production value video so i think i spent way too long talking about this fucking piece of shit jackass mike cernovich i feel like i'm not helping promote his work at this point because 60 minutes already gave him a spot um and i I talked about this with abby on the last podcast but this is what's happening here i i think Part of the reason why the mainstream media is boosting the alt-right so much is because the alt-right has done a very good job stealing and siphoning off sort of that dissipating, evaporating energy of the anti-war left. 
Just like Trump stole, used, and reappropriated anti-interventionist rhetoric, the alt-right did the same thing. And what I think is happening is that the mainstream media, because they love war so much, they absolutely love it. And I'm going to talk about that more later. It's very useful for them to prop up people like Mike Cernovich, like Richard Spencer, like Alex Jones. You know, they would bring on Alex Jones when, you know, the subject of 9-11 conspiracies would come up on the news so they can knock it the fuck down with very little effort. Super easy to knock down Alex Jones. You just had to listen to his radio show for more than 20 minutes and hear him, you know, either sounding like a crazy egomaniac narcissist, you know, borderline abusive personality, even to his own employees, or to hear him lying and contradicting himself, or to hear him saying something so off the wall that it discredits everything else real that he's talking about. This is why the mainstream media is now hyping up Richard Spencer and Mike Cernovich uh, is because they are quote unquote anti-Syrian intervention. Richard Spencer and Mike Cernovich, or I, I actually specifically Richard Spencer was, was in charge of an anti-Syrian intervention March in DC. So the mainstream media and all these idiot pundits were basically boosting that event that was hosted by Richard Spencer in order to make everybody who wants hands off Syria, no intervention in order to paint everybody who wants that as a, I guess a white nationalist or a neo-Nazi or a kook. And that this is what I think is happening here. The anti-war left, you know, as kooky as some of the people in the anti-war left are, I'm not going to deny that you go to any anti-war protest that's mainly lefties there's always some kooky hippies or people dressed in crazy costumes or whatever they're not the majority of the people there i even with that existing in the anti-war movement even with some of the antics code pink does it's still nothing that the mainstream media would ever promote and boost up because on some level it's still far more dangerous to the military industrial complex and the war machine than anything on the alt-right because the alt-right is steering you down the wrong path. This quasi-anti-interventionist alt-right mindset, it is, like I said, based on a fundamentally flawed framework that is okay with war in Afghanistan, endless war. They probably were okay with the Iraq war at first, and when it became a disaster, they weren't okay with it. They never talk about the moral implications of war. They only usually talk about it from an economic nationalist standpoint or that they don't want World War III because, let's face it, no one wants World War III. You'd have to be a psychotic person to want World War III. Well, I guess that eight-year-old Syrian girl who has a verified Twitter account qualifies as that because she actually said, she tweeted um, that it's better to have World War III than to let Assad stay in power. Um, yeah, but an eight-year-old girl tweeted that, yep. Well, I'm going to read to you another... Another article, which to me is completely phony, is another example of the alt-right running flank for the Trump administration and actually using their own outlets as a conduit for Trump administration propaganda. Here's an article from InfoWars, Paul Joseph Watson. White House source, Trump pushes back he pushes back, guys, by, by bombing Assad's uh, military base. That's him pushing back. 
against neocon plan to invade Syria. The Trump administration is currently locked in a heated debate over whether to launch a full ground invasion of Syria, with hundreds of soldiers now massing. According to White House sources who spoke to InfoWars, Trump is reticent to see U.S. troops embroiled in yet another Middle Eastern quagmire, but is under pressure from top neocons in his administration. Okay. So I'm going to stop right there. So first, I just want to thank Paul Watson um, for warning everybody about all these top neocons inside Trump's administration. Um, it was really helpful and useful for you to sort of give us a roadmap of all the neocons going into Trump's administration before it happened. Thank you, Paul. Actually, I'm being completely sarcastic because you didn't do a fucking thing. You actually ran cover for Trump's neocons for almost a year. Um, the amount of content coming out on Infowars, pointing out that John Bolton, James Woolsey, Frank Gaffney were dangerous neocons was almost zero. Um, you guys actually ran articles promoting Rudy Giuliani, the man who destroyed the 9-11 crime scene evidence, simply because he was pro-Trump. There's no denying that Infowars somehow cross-party lines and actually managed to captivate an audience of a lot of anti-war lefties for a while. I'm sure that audience dwindled when Alex Jones became obsessed with um, attacking black people um, at the same time as he completely reversed on pointing out the dangers of militarized police. It's funny how that happened uh, like that, right? Isn't it? That Alex Jones was probably one of the loudest megaphones in the United States, warning us about militarized SWAT team police, riot police. And then all of a sudden, as soon as black people started protesting and there were some riots in Ferguson, boom, he's all of a sudden pro-police, doesn't talk about militarized police anymore at all. He's fine with it. Because at least before this, Alex Jones was warning us about militarized police. As bullshitty as his website was, that's, that's an issue that's genuine. That's an important issue to warn people about. Paul Joseph Watson also claimed he's off the Trump train now. But I'm sorry, Paul, but uh, who's giving, who's your White House source? Um, I'd like, I'd really like to know who that White House source is that's telling you that there are top neocons in his administration that you completely ignored before. So all of a sudden there are neocons inside the Trump administration, but before they weren't, they weren't. They were all just an economic nationalists, anti-globalists. Um, anti-interventionists. Um, and even Julian Assange um, seems to be, I don't know what the fuck is happening with him, man, but I'm extremely disappointed by his behavior lately. Um, he retweeted Paul Joseph Watson's thing about alt-right being the new counterculture, um, which was kind of shocking. I mean, I could maybe understand Julian Assange has been cooped up in the embassy, hasn't you know walked in the sunlight for... A few years, he's going a little stir crazy, but it's been awfully surprising to see him downplaying things that Trump administration is doing. Um, and I was complaining about this months ago after Trump won, that now is not the time to nonstop be talking about Obama and all the horrible things he did. What I meant by that was it's more important to talk about the things that Trump is doing now that are ho horrible or potentially horrible militarily or the things he's planning it's very important, though, to put it in context with Obama and how this is more or less a continuation to some degree of 
Bush era, Reagan era neoconservatism. That's important. And on all the horrible wars Obama was involved in, that's important to mention. But to mention it every time Trump does something bad, and that's sort of what you lean on every time, to me it shows either a lack of ability to see reality or that you're actually, you have some kind of faith in Trump still, that he's actually not that bad. And I think if it's taking you this long to, you know, where you're still in that mode where you're like, well, maybe, you know, I'll wait and see what he's doing. The Syria strike should really be a wake-up call to everyone who was supporting Trump. I mean, obviously to the anti-interventionists who were, um, or I don't even understand how that's even possible. And of course, Russia is really upset about this. Everyone, you know, there are a lot of like Democrats and, and liberals who are saying, well, this is, you know, Trump is just doing this to distract away from the Russian scandal. Okay, let's, let's run with that theory for a second. So was he bombing Assad, an action that Obama wasn't even willing to take to distract away from the fact that the Democrats and the mainstream media have been trying to create this web where somehow Donald Trump is a Putin puppet. Um, at first, I thought maybe that's possible. Maybe this is a clever ruse of some kind. Even people from the Institute for the Study of War were, were tweeting out, well, if no Russians died at the base, then obviously this is like a, a fake, you know, like a PR move on his part. Um, Apparently, they called Russia on a military channel right before the strike and warned them of it. Um, there were actually some Russians at the base still, even though most of them left. Most of the aircraft at the base was destroyed. We fired 59 Tomahawk cruise missiles from the ocean uh, into Syria. The same night, Brian Williams on MSNBC was quoting Leonard Cohen ly lyrics inaccurately, I might add, about how he's impressed by the beauty of our weaponry and the beauty of the, the photos, video being shown of us launching missiles into Syria. Rachel Maddow all of a sudden became an expert on Tomahawk missiles, how they fly, how they target. It was almost like she got a little primer from a defense contractor. Um, and we have to remember that NBC is owned by GE, which is a defense contractor. They, they produce a lot of things. They also produce weapons. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it's pretty obvious. It should be obvious now. It's obvious to me that Russia was not happy with this and, and, and not even that they just weren't happy with it. They actually doubled down on their support for Assad and agreed to reinforce his, his air force in Syria. Russia also says that the gas attack that Assad apparently committed was a false flag. They say it's another false flag by the rebels, which is sort of the going theory about the first gas attack. They've not said anything about Assad stepping down. Everyone, there's all these pundits right now saying that, well, there's probably some negotiation right now where Russia realizes how untenable this relationship with Assad is and they're going to negotiate a, a step down. That's the same thing people were saying in 2014 after Obama backed down from the red line. You know, everyone was like, oh, what's happening here? You know, can, you know, Obama's not really going to stop here. You know, he's still going to negotiate some kind of step down of Assad or whatever. It's not going to happen. And all you have to do is watch the video of Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State, who looks like a fucking t 
Tobe Hooper villain. I mean, he, he his accent, it's ridiculous. Uh, he, he looks, he just doesn't even look like a real member of government. He's got a thick Texan accent. It's weird to see him in action. He met with Sergei Lavrov in Russia. Putin explicitly refused to meet with him. I think originally the plan was Rex Schlerson was going to meet with Putin. Didn't happen. Putin snubbed him. Uh, the actual meeting between the two, if this is a PR stunt to smooth over or to try to distract away from the Trump as a Russian Manchurian candidate theory, it was the most well-acted thing I've ever seen. I mean, Rex Tillerson and Sergei Lavrov, you know, should have won an Oscar for their performance because it was awkward as fuck. Uh, Sergei Lavrov was extremely upset. I've actually never seen him this upset before on video. Watch that video of the two of the two of them meeting to dispel any notion that this was done as a PR stunt to distract away from the Trump-Russia narrative. Now, on the other hand, I'm, I'm actually going to make the case in the rest of this episode that what Trump is doing militarily, from a businessman's perspective, because you have to remember Trump is primarily a businessman, this is, this is a PR stunt for his own presidency. We're already 80 days into his administration. Most presidents are historically judged on their first 100 days. Reagan was considered a joke for most of his first 100 days until he started to launch all these aggressive military campaigns and acted really tough, like he's some kind of swaggering sheriff, virtually identical to what Trump is doing here. Obviously, Trump was in some ways military-minded, bloodthirsty, um, had some warmongering qualities to him. But, you know, it almost just seemed like he was hitting all these targets for middle America. Like, let's bomb the shit out of them. But no, we don't want to get, like, entangled in another, like, quagmire. We don't want our soldiers there. Like, uh, firing on both cylinders, hitting different targets. But ultimately, I think it's pretty, it was pretty obvious that Trump, at any moment, if he was pushed into it or if he felt that it was the right thing to do, he could become more crazy cowboy, uh, swaggering foreign policy than even George W. Bush. And we are already seeing that right now in real time. Um, so not too long after, so yesterday, um, at the time I'm recording this podcast, a mother of all bombs was dropped on a, an alleged ISIS cave complex in Afghanistan. So there's a lot of crazy things about this. For those who don't know what a mother of all bombs is, um, it's the largest conventional explosives we have available to us. Um, it's about as half as powerful as the nuke dropped on Hiroshima. But it's not a nuke. It's a conventional explosive. The shockwave itself um, could kill people within like a 500 foot radius. So complete, inexplicably, seemingly for no reason at all, no real logical reason, Trump dropped, decided to, obviously this wasn't just his generals deciding to, an MOAB, mother of all bombs, on a cave complex in Afghanistan. 
the, the a spokesperson for the Afghan Defense Ministry said that there are reports of 36 ISIS fighters killed. Um, and then other reports said that 82 were killed. Okay, so let's let's just analyze this for a second. The idea of an ISIS of an ISIS cave complex in Afghanistan is absolutely laughable. This is basically what the Bush administration was trying to tell us about why it was so hard to catch Bin Laden and Al Qaeda operators in Afghanistan is because they hid in these giant, elaborate, you know, super villain secret hideouts, un- cave complexes in the mountains. Um, there's actually a cutout, cutaway graphic that Rumsfeld showed. Um, I think it was on Meet the Press of Bin Laden's hideout in Afghanistan. It looks absolutely cartoonish. There is no way in hell that anything remotely like that exists. But we are we have entered an era where the American public has become so fucking stupid and bloodthirsty that they just buy it. They, they you know people seemed actually smarter around the time of the Iraq war. Most people who would have seen that picture on TV, it's just not believable. Let's just say that. You would have to be awfully dumb to believe that. Um, and I, as some U.S. soldier who served in Afghanistan was trying to tell me that that picture that I was just describing is actually accurate, and then a lot of these fortresses do look like that. And I was just like, come on, man. Like, I mean, I believe there's probably underground bunkers and hideouts but the the picture is so over the top i mean we'll put a link to it on the timeline here so you can just see it for yourself a lot of listeners of media roots have probably i'm sure have seen this picture before it was one of the probably one of the best moments of fahrenheit 9-11 but this moab as they call it it's one of those things that you, you, I mean, I've only seen it before on these like military porn shows, like military tech shows, or, like um, on National Geographic Channel and the Discovery Channel. It actually makes me wonder if Trump is just watching TV all the time during his spare time. Um, he even was watching a commercial, watching t- TV really loudly on Air Force One the very first time the press ever filmed him on Air Force One. Keep that in mind. Really disturbing clip. But it makes me wonder if this is something that I have seen before and I don't even really, I probably don't do as much research as I should do on like new military technology and, you know, weapons that Raytheon produces. Um, write a note to myself right now telling myself to do that, actually. But I've, I've heard of this thing before. I've seen video of it on like the Discovery Channel blowing up. I didn't remember that it was the largest explosive ordinance ordinance we had short of a nuke but i remembered that it was just like oh this is like an experimental really expensive thing that we have um that we can do but we've never used it before so i knew that it had never been used before but donald trump decided to use one yesterday um in afghanistan oh and in between this i i forgot to mention to you guys some more fun stuff is happening um, a few days ago, an article in the Metro out of the UK from April 12th, that's Wednesday, two days ago, that Trump sent an armada to North Korea as Kim Jong-un threatens to nuke warships. So after these joint, giant joint exercises between the US military and South Korea, um, with I think it was 
a hundred thousand troops total. It was a very large amount of troops, a giant exercise. Um, I've read accurate reports, um, that, you know, that I buy that say that Obama would have also done something like this if he was still in office, it was already sort of planned out, but North Korea, of course, you know, released a bunch of propaganda, made a big public show out of how upset they were out uh, over this going into this exercise. I guess there's a little bit more understandable nervousness on North Korea's part. Um, we have to remember that Bush putting North Korea in, um, calling them the axis of evil probably helped propel and encourage North Korea to build their own nuclear weapons program in the first place. So, this didn't happen in a vacuum. Abby did a really good job of explaining this last time. Um, follow Mike Preisner on Twitter. He has been tweeting some great stuff about North Korea. Tim Chirac, he'll talk about how he, he has a very, I think he actually lives in South Korea right now, if I'm not mistaken. But he just puts everything into context. We're going into this, though, with more nervous energy based on the fact that John Bolton, and this is just from my perspective, but I'll bridge it into the general public's perspective in a second, is that John Bolton and James Woolsey, part of the transition team, two of the most vociferous, outspoken hawks about North Korea, and also Michael Ledeen was back in the day. So we have to wonder how much influence Flynn had in this regard, too. Everyone's been bullshitting around and acting like Flynn is some kind of anti-neocon savior. How much influence did he get from Michael Ledeen? Why wouldn't he have injected some of that anti-North Korean you know, propaganda into Trump's brain? Because I think the one thing that is true about Trump that remains true, and that I only hear the mainstream media pundits saying this occasionally is that Trump is not an ideologue in the real sense of the word. You know, even Obama, as malleable and as much of a vessel as Obama was, at a certain point, it did seem like he did, he was an ideologue, that he had a specific foreign policy vision. He, he, you know, he was making decisions based on mistakes that he thought that he had learned (laughs) Um, I would say that, you know, at, at, that's the most generous thing I could say about him, but it doesn't seem like Trump is actually an ideologue in the sense of like a governing ideologue. He's definitely a nationalist and he wants to sort of enrich our economy here while pulling away from the rest of the world in that regard. This is really unprecedented. In his first hundred days, Trump is like a businessman trying to turn the ship around on a PR level and he's doing it. And and I think this is the only explanation for why he's doing all these things at once right now. It's because he's running out of time. I mean, it seemed like he was widely hated after the Syria strike. It seemed like his popularity was about to plummet through the floor among all his base, most of his most outspoken base. Mainstream media started to like him for that, which was shocking. But then when we sort of got this armada to North Korea and then this Moab blast in Afghanistan, I think after those two things happened, we are now in a heightened 
emotional state. Everybody's on edge who's paying attention to what's happening right now. There are even people who are worried that there's going to be a nuke that's going to go off somewhere in the world, either in North Korea, that we're going to preemptive attack them, that North Korea is going to attack with a nuke somewhere. I even saw someone on Facebook today saying, should I even bother going to San Francisco right now because I'm worried about a nuke going off because of what Trump's doing with North Korea. So there's, and this, you know, this guy's not really political at all. He's just going into this. Um, it wasn't just the neocons, you know, and these actually, I'm talking about these exercises mainly, these joint exercises between South Korea and the United States that even if Obama was already planning to do something like that, or if he had, you know, that's normal, that was like a scheduled exercise and nothing to do with Trump. We were already going into an environment where Trump had been probably listening to several neocon advisors who have always wanted to do something to North Korea, some kind of military action against him. But we also had Trump himself saber-rattling with North Korea a little bit during the election, but then surprisingly, pretty consistently, once he got into office. Um, he mentioned it quite a lot, to the point where he sort of said, we're going to do something with North Korea. You know, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do with North Korea. I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do. Like, he's going to do something, but it's going to be a surprise. That implies aggressive posturing for sure and one thing to keep in mind from all this is that the neoconservative movement as intellectual as they pretend to be they're very smart people they're very well educated a lot of them are very good writers i'll admit they'll drop the facade of wanting to cater to this intellectual side of dc politics or or the world at large in general as soon as they see an in for a swaggering ready to use military force at any moment, a malleable president who's willing to wage war with several countries at once, they will drop the facade of being intellectual and go along with the stupidest president you can imagine as long as he's willing to use military force against North Korea, against Iran, against Iraq again, in Syria, in, in a bunch of different countries, and in Ukraine. If Trump did all of those things at once the neocons would put all of their would bet all of their chips on Trump. They would put all of their energy into cheerleading what he's doing. They would try to get into positions of, you know, advising him, uh, consulting with him. It doesn't matter. All of that bullshit of, you know, this falling out with Trump and the neocons, it won't matter at that point. If the main, and here's a good litmus test. If the mainstream media is already turning and beginning to accept Trump more because he's willing to do all these crazy military things, which is really disturbing if you think about it, because this is, and Abby mentioned this to me today when we were talking, she, I was trying to get her to join us for the podcast today, but she couldn't do it. She's about to go on a flight, but she brought up something really interesting that I, I was kind of sensing, but I didn't really like the thought didn't pop into my head, head the way that she actually articulated it, which was it actually seems like the media right now, the way they're responding to these things, Syria, North Korea, the Moab and Afghanistan, they're acting almost as crazily hyper pro war and like accepting and normalizing it of, of it and 
cheerleading it on just like just like they were doing the 2003 Iraq war which is a really interesting observation because you would think oh well, we're a little bit more sophisticated more you know some more nuanced discussion people you know there's more history here now um this the media doing you know cheerleading for war to that extent is going to be too obvious we have to have a little bit you know different approach to it this time around no absolutely not for some reason or another this sort of military industrial complex the tentacle monster that is the military industrial complex um a lot of these corporations that also provide weaponry and military you know machinery and are part of the military industrial complex are also part of the entertainment industry um like GE as i was saying earlier and you really have to wonder what happens when there's a big window of opportunity for the military industrial complex to make a shitload of money and basically get an endless boost of revenue based on a lot of upcoming wars and i guess what happens is what abby perceived which is there's some kind of weird it's like this there's a zeitgeist that forms in sort of the the consciousness where the media and, and you know and the and it's sort of like a, a negative and positive magnets being attracted to each other the media is you know getting a little excited and then the military industrial complex machinery is getting excited and they sort of like slowly attract towards each other and become more intensified based on one another's response and i think that that's what's happening because with obama it was very clear that no matter what happened it seemed unlikely that obama was actually willing to send ground troops in to a country like to start another war anywhere near the level of the iraq war he was willing to do a surge in afghanistan you know everybody more or less agreed that was kind of did nothing didn't it didn't make it worse necessarily but it also didn't help anything with trump anything's on the table baby fucking anything there is no doubt in my mind at least right now that trump would actually consider doing something to north korea I, I, I don't I see it as a uh, maybe an eighty percent likelihood at this point, and I'm really really scared. It's just not a good situation, and it's not because North Korea is going to nuke some random country. I also care about the North Korean people, and I think this is something that gets lost. It's been largely lost by the anti-war movement at large, especially this alt-right anti-interventionist crowd. They don't ever really talk about the civilian populations of these countries you know they br- they'll bring up the christians being beheaded by isis um and things like that but they won't bring up why bombing isis is bad you know even if you think isis is the ultimate evil that bombing isis territories from an airplane or a drone is wrong we created this mess in the first place and we are willing to endure a you know what they call collateral damage which is basically murdering innocent civilians in order to clean up this mess that we are entirely 100% responsible for and no i'm not saying that the united states is funding isis i'm saying that the united states created a series of circumstances that created isis i think that it's wrong to bomb them i think that it's wrong to conduct military action in a country um in order to fight isis 
I am completely against that. I don't believe that it's right or America's place to attack another country or to murder people in other countries if they pose absolutely no threat to us whatsoever and it's not in self-defense of any kind. I'm not into this minority report pre-crime bullshit about targeting, you know, al-Qaeda suspects and, you know, people who are going to plan terrorist attacks and then just bombing them from, you know, a thousand miles up in the sky from a drone. I'm not, that's not my thing. Um, And it shouldn't be your thing either. That shouldn't be okay. The reason why this is so scary is because anything's on the table with Trump. There's a new aha moment among the machinery of the military industrial complex and the mainstream media, which is owned in, in some parts by parts of the military industrial complex. And this is when you're going to see this entire system light up like a Christmas tree. Or actually more like National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, uh, the way that the dad decorated the house. It's going to be like that. I'm speaking more worst case scenario here. I'm not trying to fear monger, but at the same time, we do have to realize that Trump's personality is perfectly set up for a military industrial complex fire sale on a level we have never seen before. It's not going to be anything like World War II. Even if World War III-like scenario doesn't go nuclear, there is so much military firepower and technology we have never actually used in combat, never been able to actually use, that this will also just serve as a giant test, an experiment, to see how all these weapons actually work in combat. I mean, we've never used a rail gun in combat. Raytheon has one, apparently. Or different companies, you know, have them. They're not very practical yet, but like this Moab thing, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, if you think that's the only thing the U.S. military has that it's extremely eager to test out, you know, it's kind of like there's there's a lot of incentives here for really, really horrible shit to come. A pivotal moment for what foreign policy is going to be like Coming from the United States, I mean, if you thought post 9-11 and all of the draconian legislation that was put into place, the terrorism, fear-mongering, and all the unnecessary wars was bad and seemed like a nightmare, um, the neocons and the military-industrial complex want way more. They want way more than what Bush and Obama were willing to do. Yeah, On some level, Obama was definitely carrying out neoconservative policies. There's no doubt about that. But compared to what the neocons really, really wanted him to do, like if if Obama was willing to go all the way, it would have been absolute hellscape pandemonium because the neoconservatives are constantly gambling on this idea that as long as America has the biggest dick and shows it off and swings it around to all these other global players, then we're, we will be able to maintain this world order and this system and keep it going. And if we don't do that every single time we have an opportunity to, then we're pulling away from our role and making it easier for these other countries to have a, you know, a bigger piece of the pie somehow. A lot of this is symbolism. So, you know, even just hearing Fox news um, today talking about North Korea I was just blown away by 
they're getting excited. There's adrenaline like flowing through them while they're talking about North Korea and not because they're worried, but because they're like excited that America is like willing to go this far, you know, and the last two presidents weren't including Bush. So there's something exciting to people about it. But I think, you know, and that's putting people in a heightened state as well. There's the fear factor that's making people feel uneasy and that's putting people in a malleable, you know, fearful state. But there's also this sort of excitement, this egotism, this narcissism, this arrogance that Americans have sort of innately in them that gets activated. You know, the people who like this kind of stuff, they get activated in a different way than the rest of us who really don't like this stuff. And that's, and I think that that's almost like an equal measure. I mean, we are a sick, sick country. And I say that with no exaggeration. On some level, we are all mentally ill as Americans. Um, we are all suffering from, you know, perhaps a mild version of Stockholm Syndrome, but it's on a societal level. We're also piling up um, an unprecedented karmic debt, the death toll of millions in our name by the day. Uh, every single American who lives in this country whether you pay taxes, whether you vote, whether you don't vote, whether you're too young to pay taxes or vote, is passively or accept, accepting on some level all this murder and carnage done, they claim, to protect us and the rest of the world. So, even if you believe in it, you're believing in a myth, a, a blatant myth um, and you're in denial. Now, there are also people who are willfully ignorant of it, who just, you know, they don't want to know what America is doing in their name. And I think that that's more of a natural response because that's almost like I'm connected to my, my empathy for other humans and I just don't want to know about it because I know it'll make me too upset. But this, this, this is the reality. I mean, even if you just look at Iraq alone... It was such a senseless, horrible thing that we did, that country and those people, that all that blood is on our hands as citizens here. And to look back on it now and for all these pundits and people to say it was a mistake, we made a mistake, the war wasn't managed right, you know, all the intelligence said they had WMDs, and even people like Trump who are like, you know, it was a horrible mistake, it was a waste of money, you know, we killed, you know, we kill all these U.S. troops for no reason. It's not coming from a place of morality. Um, even the, the WMD's argument that's pop, that was sort of popular in the anti-war movement, you know, of the early aughts, I don't think that it's a morally strong argument in the sense that if Iraq had WMDs, if they had every single WMD program that the Bush administration claimed they did, um, it was. It's still not morally right to invade their country and kill over a million people. It doesn't make it right. So, but see, the neocons are playing off of America's willingness to go along with this. They know they just have to grease the skids because the mentality of denialism, of acceptance, of the normalization of all this violence abroad is there, ready for them to exploit. I mean, it's, it's, 
it's pretty evident in one specific Bill Crystal editorial from the, around the time of the Ukraine flashpoint situation when there was a, you know, it had to be decided in the State Department and in the Obama administration if they were going to send offensive weaponry to Ukraine. Bill Crystal of the Project for the New American Century was actually advocating for not just sending weapons to Ukraine, over $3 billion of weaponry to Ukraine, but also ground troops, U.S. ground troops in Ukraine to fend off Russian separatists. Um, and in his editorial, um, he basically talks about how America is too war-weary right now because of Iraq. The American public is too war-weary. But all that needs to happen is the rallying. And once you sort of rally people for war, then they'll go along with it. So he's almost explaining what his own job is. And as a sort of liaison for the military-industrial complex, whether Bill Crystal would consider himself one of you know that or not, he's one of their best salesmen. Even though his brand has been tainted you know, multiple times over the years, he still gets regular spots on ABC, CNN, MSNBC. I mean, CNN's Jake Tapper actually brought on James Woolsey um, as like an expert to talk about the Syria situation. And uh, he he thanked him at the end of the interview and said he'd love to have him on again. This is how intertwined this sort of, not just the military industrial complex is, but these crazy neocons are with the mainstream media. Still, but Bill Crystal actually said after the Syria bombing that Trump is now his president. Um, he tweeted that. There's a turning point happening here right now where the neocons might be getting their craziest fantasy to come true. Uh, if they just try hard enough and wish hard enough and swallow their pride over their you know hatred for Trump and uh, just go along with it and rally him. And get behind him on all these different things he's going to do. And is already doing. <laughs>